All right, time for another edition of Bull in the Basement. And we are joined by three-time Olympian because, well, the Olympics are starting this week in Beijing, China. And it's got to get you pumped up, Steve. Yeah, man, that uh, it is. Uh, Steve Messler joins us, Buffalo native. How, how long have you been in Calgary? Almost exactly as, as long as I lived in Buffalo, actually. Now it's okay. about 18 years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. For people that don't know, and your name might not be familiar. Uh, you you weren't a hockey player. You were a bobsledder, but yeah, that's okay. I wasn't. I wasn't a Buffalo Bill or wasn't a <laughs> Buffalo Saber. Yeah. Uh, tell us, tell folks like where you grew up, where you went to school. Yeah, grew up. Uh, grew up right by Delaware Park. So grew up, you know, Del- you know, Potomac and Delaware. Uh, my folks unfortunately bought, sold that house a handful of years ago, and and you know did the whole Florida thing. Now went to school. Went you know went waterfront. Went to City Honors from you know seventh grade onwards and graduated graduated from there. And we will pick up and piggyback on that. Come up in a little bit with what you've been doing for years called the Classroom Champions. So we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Awesome. I know you come back to Buffalo and do that occasionally. Um, yeah. So let's ask the most important question: uh, How does a kid from Buffalo get into bobsledding? I mean, listen, most kids, you know, you you're playing baseball or hockey or basketball or football, maybe golf or yep. tennis, but bobsledding, how does that become a thing? How are you interested in it? And how did you get to the point where you got to actually do it, liked it and got great at it? I, you know, I, I went from an even more creative route than going from Buffalo into bobsled, which could, you know, theoretically make sense because there's snow and the cold and we're six and a half hours from Lake Placid. But even more so, I went to University of Florida on a track scholarship after I left, after I graduated from City Honors, went to Florida and then went to bobsled after that. So I basically lost a bet to get to back, to go back into the cold and the snow. Um, no, we recruit big track athletes. The guys you're going to see, the guys and girls you're going to see, um, you know, in Beijing are big track athletes, fast football players. I was a big track athlete and long story short, got recruited to, to do bobsled with a little bit of a dear John email as I was sitting on my couch. Uh, at the end of my college career at Florida with, you know, with two days out of surgery and my Tommy John surgery, elbow reconstruction from throwing the javelin and decathlon after a miserably terrible four years of, of decathlon at University of Florida. <laughs> but luckily, at least I walk out of there with a degree and then found my way, like literally wrote an email, said, I'm this big, this strong, this fast. Can I do it? If, if great, if I can, yes. Awesome. If not, just let me know and you won't hear from me again. Uh, and that is how I started bobsledding. That's interesting because let's face it, most of the famous summer Olympic American heroes were decathletes, right? Over the years. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you could call decathletes really, I mean, super athletes, right? Yeah. They, many of them are, I can't call myself a super athlete, but I can call many of the guys that I had to compete against super athletes. You were doing, I mean, did you even do, was this, was the steeplechase? Did you have to do the steeplechase? Was that part of that or no? No, it was. All right. You ready? You ready? All right. Everybody at home, you got your, you can count, you can do the things. So (laughs) the day one was hundred long jump, shot put, high jump, 400. Day two was 110 high hurdles, discus, pole vault, javelin, 1500. Man, man. Yeah. It was awful. It was awful. To, you know, you as if doing five events in a row one day wasn't bad enough. You had to and finishing with the 400 meters, which anybody's done track. That's the thing that just makes your legs feel like you've got, you know, concrete and you're about to go swim with the fishies. Um, then you have to wake up the next day and do it all over again. Man. And so you have to be trained in all of those dynamic, unique sports. I mean, obviously running is running, but hurdles yep. are what they are. Yeah. And then all, I mean, with, with the hammer throw in there. 
Nope. Hammer okay. throw was hammer and throw. Everybody could go back to your notes. You could hear that hammer throw wasn't, <laughs> wasn't in, wasn't, but like, I mean, you got discus. Yeah. It was like a random assortment of it's the reason why the, the Olympic champion in decathlon is called the world's greatest, greatest athlete, whether you are Bruce or Caitlin Jenner, or whether you are, uh, you know, Ashton Jesse Eaton, Owens who's our or- Jesse Owens or our most recent Olympic champion, Ashton Eaton, yeah. um, or my childhood idol, the guy who, inspired me to become a decathlete, which then led me to Florida, which then led me to, to bobsled, which then led me to my gold medal, uh, Dan O'Brien. Yeah. Um, these people are amazing athletes. Yeah. Reebok Dan, right? They're, exactly. Yeah. The Dan and Dan. <laughs> it, was, it was the whole, you know, funny story, an awesome story about Dan. So, I mean, Dan was the re, the Dan and Dave Reebok commercials from like 1992, the Barcelona Olympics, where if, <clears throat> to, if anybody can't remember just YouTube, uh, Dan versus Dave Reebok, and you will see this great assortment. It really let everybody in the world know what decathletes were. And Dan didn't make the Olympics because he no hided in the pole vault at Olympic trials, which you can't do. And then, but what was cool for me was four months later, after he didn't have get to go to the Olympics, he went and broke the world record in a place called Talents France. And then I got to, I met him. Then I was in the stadium in 1996 in Atlanta with my family, right before I went to University of Florida. As like my high school graduation gift, part of it was to go to the Olympics in Atlanta. And we watched Dan win his gold medal. Met him a couple of times here and there. Fast forward to 2010, which was my third Olympics, yep. uh, the Vancouver Olympics, where we wound up winning our gold medal. And what the athletes that, you know, right now in Beijing or on the way to Beijing, a lot of the athletes are sitting in Los Angeles at, you know, or, or Salt Lake city at what's called like accreditation. And they get like, they, they get their well, accreditation happens when they get to Beijing, but it's either holding camp or processing and they get all their gear. Well, in Vancouver, we fly into a hotel on a Monday morning before opening ceremony. So it would have been, uh, you know, the, the, the Monday before opening ceremonies, we get all of our gear. And then the Tuesday morning, we were going to head off to the Olympic village and they do a little shtick, a little song and, song and dance for us. And as we're sitting there at the breakfast, you know, there was going to be a video from, you know, President Obama and yada, yada. And I get this punch on my shoulder. And who is it? But Dan O'Brien. Come on. My childhood idol. The reason I'm sitting where I'm sitting. And then Dan gives us his pep talk. And what's his pep talk? It was the 1980 Miracle on Ice hockey game that caused him to want to be an Olympian. And his his entire kind of spiel was you never know what kids are out there watching you that are going to cause you're going to cause to want to go be an Olympian. And meanwhile, here's the guy who caused me to want to be an Olympian. And that's like my circle of life kind of Olympic story. Yeah. That's phenomenal, man. That is phenomenal. Okay. So you get, you get the, the call. You're like, Hey, come, come be a bobsledder, right? You're, you got, you're obviously a power guy. You're, you know, yep. well, your whole body's powerful, but in there was a time, there was a time for those of you watching on video, there's a time. Um, but so, but the, the power in correct, I mean, I could be way off of this. I've never done it. The power in bobsledding is, is in your, your, probably your legs mostly. Right. Yep. Correct. So you are, you, you are your centaurs to to, to give a shout out to my city honors kids out there. You're a centaur. You are a horse's like you're a horse, right? Like you were squatting and power cleans and hurdle hops and bounding. And then up top, you actually, you'll see these guys that look pretty big but they shouldn't be because you have to get in there and be aerodynamic and you're not bench pressing the sled. Your arms are locked in place as you push. And it's really just your hips and your legs that are really doing the work. Yeah. Like, I, okay, perfect. Thank you. And this is not going to be very nice. And listen, <laughs> I am not a guy that's in shape at all, but I, I think it was Holcomb on your 
four man. You, Holcomb, you stand up a little bit for me, right. Rich. I mean, let's see. You could you could be a body double for Steve Holcomb in his prime. Okay, well, and I, and I, I say this. And I, <laughs> I say this, <laughs> Olympic champion, just take it as the Olympic okay. champion. All right, all right. And I say this in all jest of my former teammate who's not with us anymore. Um, but I can because he's my former teammate and, you know, a brother in arms. Um, and yeah, he was, he, Holcomb was an interesting body type, but he was a power man. He was a, he was a powerhouse. It's funny. You see and, some, and a hell of a driver. Yeah. I, you see, I was watching, you know, the, the Rams 49ers game last night. Yeah. They have a nose tackle who, you know, if you saw him, you'd be like, oh, big guy. He's like a bouncer at a bar or something, right? But, man, was that guy powerful. He had a big, giant gut. Like, looks like he's not going to be athletic at all. And then he surprises the hell out of you because he is, which I'm sure yeah. that's what Steve Holcomb was. So uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, – so you mentioned he was the driver. What was your part of the bobsled? I was – push athlete. So – my job, sorry, my uh, microphone seems to be connecting here. Um, my job is a as a push athlete, so I was a three man. So we did. I think the best person that we ever talked to that like encapsulated this the best is we did the Colbert Report back in the yeah. day, back when Stephen Colbert had his uh, has had his other show, and he labeled us as airbags. So I was in essence an airbag. <laughs> I was a three man, which meant that I was a push. I pushed, and my job was to accelerate that thing, and I got in as quickly and as smoothly as possible. And then I was a lot more nuanced to it, but in essence, along for the ride. Um, so let's return a little bit to, you get the call, you say, okay, I'm going to do it. So yep. obviously I'm assuming that you just mentioned some of the training and some of the work you have to go through to get to your level to win a gold medal in the, in the Olympics. But um, listen, pole vault, I hate heights. I'd be scared to death to do a pole vault. How frightening is it to get in that bobsled the first time on that track? I mean, you're you're going what 80 miles an hour somewhere in that neighborhood? My my first track that I took a trip down was Park City, Utah, and you hit like 88 miles an hour. Yeah. And, it is and, I mean, is it um, an amusement park ride or, or it's terrifying. Playing? No, yeah. it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Um it is, I remember, you know, just like anything else, right? Like the vet veterans try to spook the, the rookies a little bit and scare you a little bit. And, you know, I can remember I here in Cal I'm living in Calgary now and there's an ice house here. And we used to train the ice house just kind of goes, you push and you get in the sled and then it swoops back up and it slows you down. So you can just practice or start over and over. I remember getting to park city and that part looked familiar. And then all of a sudden though, it didn't swoop back up. It just kind of took a left-hand turn and disappeared. And the guys would be like, oh, you know, starting to mess with you and tell you how scary it's going to be that you had, you know, and really literally your first couple of trips down, your job is just count the corners. So you remember where to pull the brakes because you only pull the brakes when you cross the finish line. Right. What I didn't quite realize was that it's impossible to count the corners when you first start going down because you go through like curve one, two and three, nice and slow. You're going, you get in the sled and all of a sudden you're going 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour. But in Park City, Utah, and same thing here in Calgary, actually, as you hit curve four, the sled just the turn is this big, huge left dropping turn. And it probably drops a good 20 or 30 yards. Plus, then the curve itself is a good 100, you know, maybe 60 or 70, 80 yards. And it feels like you're in the sled and your head is down and the driver's in front of you and your head is down. And all you're doing is looking at like your feet in essence. And it feels like a stick of dynamite went off. And it also feels like something's gone terribly wrong. 
Like, like you're in there going, something's wrong. Like we're going to die. This is not how it could possibly be. It can't possibly feel like this. This is something is clearly wrong with the sled. And by the time you've processed where the dynamite come from, we're going to die because something's wrong. You've stopped, you've stopped counting. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're probably on curve seven, eight or nine. Oh and then the next thing, you know, you're getting a, you're like, you're, you're, the G forces are pulling your guts out of your body as you bent over. So the G forces are literally when you see a sled in Beijing, you'll see these sleds up on the wall. Clearly it's defying physics because these things weigh hundreds and hundreds of pounds. A four man sled with the guys in it weighs 1400 pounds and it's up on the wall, 10 feet up. So that's clearly the G forces holding you up there. Yeah. Five G's. And those five G's are trying to push everything in that direction, including your organs. So you can feel everything getting sucked to the bottom of the sled. And then all of a sudden you get an elbow to the back of your head from the driver yelling brakes. <laughs> and that's your first time down. My and I've seen gosh. guys, I've, I've literally seen guys get out of the sled very comfortably, take their helmets off, walk off the finish dock, walk straight into the rental car and drive to the hotel, <laughs> pack up their stuff and leave. And we never saw them again. <laughs> and then there's. Then there's the stupid ones like me who say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Let me, can I try that again? And so 10, you, year, 10 years later. Have you done anything remarkably close to that in, in like a roller coaster or a race car or anything? I, I mean, the roller, like a wooden roller coaster that also goes upside down and all those things is maybe similar, but not really because you're still sitting up. And right. to absorb G-forces when you're sitting up is a whole different story than sitting yeah. down. And you're not hitting 5Gs for lengthy periods of time. Um, I took an F-16 ride uh, after we won a gold medal. I would say an F-16 ride times a wooden roller coaster. It's like um, the Viper. Remember the Viper at sure. Daring Lake? Oh my God. Or whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. What is it called now? Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's still Whatever there. it's called. Superman is there now. That's like- the Superman. I, yeah. I did Superman as well. I just okay. remember the Viper- Times whatever the wooden roller coaster was that okay. they built that built in the nineties. Yeah. Times times an F sixteen ride is like a bobsled. So for wow. anybody who's tried all three of those things, you know what I'm talking about. That's crazy. But you can also go to Lake Placid, and for a couple hundred dollars, which is not inexpensive, but I also tell people like, look, it's worth it because it's a story you get to tell for the rest of your life. So when it comes to like dollars per story. I know folks who have taken a bobsled ride 10 years ago, and they're probably down to 25 cents per story because they tell the story <laughs> so often. Right. Uh, I've always wanted to do it. I've been to Lake Placid a ton of times and I never have I, either because I'm chicken or whatever. We run out of time, whatever. Doesn't matter. Um, Steve, uh, three Olympics, 0206-10, um, gold in Vancouver in 10, obviously. So like, take me through some of your fondest memories like that let's get away from your actual individual sport opening ceremonies meeting other athletes being in the olympic village all of that you know yeah. um tell me some of the um olympic memories that you have from all three ones that you're you were at um you know i, I think i mean so i was in salt lake city in 2002 torino italy in 2006 and in, in vancouver canada in 2010 um and i'm pretty jealous of the folks going to beijing right now only because they're going to have a totally different experience than any of us have ever had, which I think is neat. Like I'm all about experiences in life. And, uh, you know, Salt Lake city was hard to beat my first Olympics. I like, I made the team because a guy tested positive, um, a guy who wound up becoming one of my very best friends and teammates and roommates who then, um, two years ago, this spring has had committed suicide. Um, 
and like the life, the life cycle of these, you know, I've in bobsled, you have many guys who have done that. And it's, um, it's a problem in our sport. Uh, but in Salt Lake city, I was sitting in the Olympic, you know, in the USOC Olympic committee's hotel the night before opening ceremonies. And I get the phone call that his, uh, uh, protest didn't go through. So I got named to the team, which was this really weird feeling of having somebody who I knew he wasn't a friend yet, but who I knew who more than likely it was a contaminated substance. Um, back then there was a big problem. Uh, but I was making, but I made the Olympic team and there was this kind of double-edged sword and I'll never forget opening ceremonies, um, back when like George, you know, like W came and spoke to us, um, it was the first time the country breathed in five months because it was five months post 9-11. September 11th happened. Right. And then February 8th, I think, I believe, was opening ceremonies. Um, so less, you know, less than five months later is, is that. And it was the first time the country breathed. And I'll never forget like walking in at opening ceremonies from the holding arena, walking down this thing and the you know, home country goes last. And there's snipers, the silhouettes of the snipers up on the building still like resonate in my brain. And you walk through the bowels of the stadium as you come out and the American flag is out in front of you and the whole stadium just exploded with, and again, it was probably the first time in five months that Americans were given the permission to cheer. And that was a really neat and special like thing. I get goosebumps actually just like talking about it and telling it right now to be behind that. Um, my one favorite moment from the Olympic village was we had, it's one of the only Olympics I was at that had one village. So all the other villages, you have a central village in the city, and then you have these mountain clusters, uh, and Torino in 2006 and Whistler had the same things, but in Salt Lake, everybody was in the city because everything was so close. Salt Lake is just an incredible place to host an Olympics. And they're trying to host another one in mm -hmm. 2030 or 2030 or 2034. And I can remember running out of the, I was late for the shuttle running out of the, the, uh, cafeteria after breakfast and like head down, running, slammed into somebody, knocked them over. It was Brett Hull. Come on. I ran over Brett Hull. And I was like, thank I was like, dude, yeah, right. right. The Sabres fans, thank you. I was like, dude, I'm sorry, but I still got to go. And the next morning, Hull and Chelios ate breakfast every day together. And I actually went over the next morning and the next day you had apologized and had breakfast with the guys. Chelios wound up coming out, coming out. What was it like? Oh, four, oh, five. When the lockout happened, the NHL lockout happened. Something later on there, um, Chelios actually came out for bobsled um, with the Greeks. So I'm, you know, get to hang some some time with him in Lake Placid. So that was Salt Lake. I think Torino, the food was just awful. Like the Italians were so ashamed of themselves because mm -hmm. Italy is food, and the the Cestriere Village, which is up in the ski town outside of Torino, um, I just remember how awful the food was. And we also got our butts kicked there. Like we were supposed to be, we were the favorites. We were USA one. We were. It wasn't what color if we were going to win a medal, it was simply what color medal we were going to get. And we got seventh. So my entire Olympic experience was kind of just like sullied with that. I remember I, um, you know, going in there, you are, you're a rock star. You are on NBC. You are getting interviewed by anybody and everything. And I remember after the race was done, not one person wanted to interview me except for Bucky, <laughs> except for Bucky Gleason. <laughs> there you go. And Bucky, if you're out there listening, man, I mean, Bucky knows he is still to this day my favorite sports reporter. Uh, and Bucky wrote probably the best, the second best article I've ever read about myself after those games. And the best article was the, buff, the, the one he wrote after the 2010 win when he did what I had always wanted to do, which was if I ever won, I wanted a whole old Buffalo to feel like they won. And Bucky wrote about that. But in 06, Bucky wrote this like 
heartbreaking. I just like poured my heart out to him. He texted me the next day. He was like, dude, I'm sorry if it, you know, was a little too strong. I was like, look, I was interviewing with you in the media mix zone of the Olympic games. I, I realized that everything I said could be printed. Um, and I was just poured my heart out to him and he wrote it, um, which I really respected. Um, and then in Vancouver, I think the, there's a, a whole bunch of things. I remember playing rock, you know, guitar hero in between the nights of our Olympic win. So it's bobsled's two days of racing and it's four heats cumulative. You don't get to throw one heat out and, but you get to the village, you get, you know, get back to the village, you get your work done. We have the sand runners polish the, the steels, the bottom of the sled, the blades. Wait, you don't have roadies. I mean, we do for the big stuff, but like, I'll tell you what to like, you're talking about, and I'll, I'm holding my thumb up now for everybody who's listening. The radius of a runner is like a thumb, which means it's not like a sharp, like a knife, like a blade of a hockey, like a hockey skate. It's a dull, you know, thumb radius, but you have to sand these things to get them down to be polished, like perfectly all the way down from up from like 80 blue grit sandpaper, super rough all the way down the diamond paste. And the reason is because you have 1400 pounds getting smushed with five G's. And if you have one tiny scratch, that thing causes drag and drag costs you hundreds and hundreds make you go from gold medal to 10th place. So you are going to spend every single time. So, and no one wants it as bad as you. So a roadie would not, could not be possibly capable of sanding that thing as hard as you can. So you finish sanding. And I remember going in, like we went and played guitar hero, uh, in between nights. And that was like by far my fondest memories, like sitting there with my teammate, I'm on guitar and lyrics and he's on drums, Kurt Tomasevich. And, and that's our village experiences. Okay. So, uh, uh, I, I, odd question, but not, I'm sure you've been asked this because obviously there's stories. I mean, does everybody kind of go into the Olympic village and does a code form where it's like, what happens in the Olympic village stays in the Olympic village. You know what I'm getting at? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I had better stories for this. You are not the first person to ask me this, but we compete at the end. So like, I like, for me, the village was simply just another hotel yep. that I stayed at until I raced. Yep. And you know, my first, my first Olympics, I was an alternate, so I didn't get to race. So I was disappointed. My second Olympics, I was just pissed. I went straight to the, straight to the bar afterwards. Don't remember much after that. Um, and my third Olympics, we didn't really sleep because you're just, you, you, the first 36 hours after you win a medal as an American, you don't control your life. You go from this function to this function. It's very, very choreographed and it's a blast. Don't get me wrong. It is unlike any experience that you'll ever, that I've ever, you know, been able to experience in that kind of way. Um, so personally, I can't say, but I do have guys there's in my, in my gym downstairs, I have an Olympic like rings, um, flag that we, t- I took off the wall from the Olympic village in 2006, um, where I was really, really pissed. I was like, I'm taking this home. I feel like it owes me something. <laughs> this place owes me some kind of joy. And then I had all my friends and everybody sign it at, at closing ceremonies around the bus and at the, you know, on the thing and like Germans and Americans. And what's this one guy, Christian, I'm not going to mention his last name. He was a, he was an athlete who did winter sports. He would on the way out of the, like we had to walk out of the village because in Americans have to go. And I can only imagine what those are protocols are like. I have a good idea, but the protocols for security for Americans at the Olympics are really different. Vancouver was my first Olympics where we actually had American flags on the buildings. 
They just don't have American flags in buildings. It's too much of a target. And in Torino, Italy, we weren't allowed to take the regular shuttle. So the regular shuttle picked up in the village. The athletes would get on it. In Torino, Italy, up in Sestriere, we had to actually walk just outside the village. And the Americans had the hotel right next to the village. And we had to walk over there. We got into two like police vans and two FBI agents came into the vans with us. And then two police cars got behind us and in front of us and, and dudes stood out, sat out on the passenger side with an Uzi. And that's how we got to the track every day. Wow. <laughs> and the, but where I'm going with this is one of the guys who shall, shall remain unnamed. Well, we know would, his first name, but go ahead. we know his first name. Uh, <laughs> he would like, we would be heading to the track at like eight in the morning. He'd be coming home because he competed at the beginning of the games, he'd be coming home. He would come with us. He'd run into us every other day. And then he would walk out with us just to tell us the stories of the night. Cause we knew we had to live through him and he'd be out with, you know, this women's hockey team or this, you know, this, you know, ski group and all these things. And he, we actually had to live through him. So I do know people had a lot of fun. I do know that they brought that fun back to the Olympic village with them sometimes. Um, you know, in retrospect, I'm both, disappointed I didn't get those things, but also ultimately the cool thing it was about being bobsled that I learned in 2010 when we won our medal is we are the last American gold medal, which meant that we were the last thing Americans remembered. So as jealous as I was of my friends, one of my best friends, Shannon Barkey, um, who's a skier, mogul skier, she medaled and she was the first American medal in Salt Lake City. By the time I went to a party with her at the end of the Olympics, she was walking in. It was like a night of the Roxbury for her. She was just, you know, seeing everybody she knew. But on the flip side of that, when we won in Vancouver, we were, you know, we were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. We did the top 10 on Letterman because we were the final thing that like kind of stayed in Americans' memory. Um, and it was the best games the Americans had ever had. We won the medal count in the winter games for the, like the first time in generations. And we still haven't won it since. We set a record for, you know, Olympic total medals. Um, and that was a really neat kind of trade-off for sure. Um, so where's, so I was fortunate because about, gosh, it was right. I think right when you came back from the, from the 2010 Olympics with the medal, you, you were in Buffalo and you came when, when I was doing radio, we you yeah. came to the studio and I, I texted you the picture of you and I with the medal. And that was an awesome, yeah. awesome moment. Um, one that most people don't get to get. So I held the medal. I think I put it out around my neck, which is probably sacrilegious, whatever. But um, that means I'll never win a, a gold medal, which is fine because I would <laughs> yeah. never win one anyway. You sacrificed it. Yeah, it's yeah, okay. Right. Though. So where is that today? That is, do you see that little red figurine back there? I do. That is Stephen Colbert. That is a Stephen Colbert bust from when went and saw him in New York. Right behind him there is a little... It's the little case that the metal sits in. Awesome. Yeah, I don't display it. That's not my, I mean, this yeah. is my office. We're in my office right now for those who are looking. That's why I have all the Olymp obnoxious Olympic stuff behind me because my wife, I don't want to put it in the living room and everywhere and my wife wouldn't let me. Right. So this is kind of like, <laughs> this is like my office is like my man cave of all of my things that my parents framed for me back in the day, including right back here is the key to the city of Buffalo in case anybody needs to yeah. you know, rob, rob city hall. There you go. Well, we're still looking for TOs. Uh, we, okay. we, don't, we, we don't think he ever returned it. Really? Um, oh, man, that's yeah. that's a shame. Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, that's that's pretty remarkable, man. Uh, everything, all the stories are great. So all of that, you know, so Olympians kind of go off, they finish, they retire, they get out, and they kind of do their thing. You have gone on to do something remarkably wonderful, and I want you to talk about it, called Classroom Champions 
so talk a little bit about when, I mean, you've been doing it since I talked to you 12 years ago yeah. uh, or, or 10 years ago, whatever it was. Um, talk a little bit about what that is and um, how people can be a part of it, even right here back home in Buffalo for you. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, we started Class of Champions back when I was still competing. I mean, it was in essence, I would do what athletes and, you know, celebrities and business people do. Like I would go into schools, I'd give a talk, I'd leave, I'd never see those kids again and be like, if one or two kids listened, it's worth <laughs> my time. And that just didn't do it. And my sister, uh, she has her PhD in education. I had been a teacher. Our parents were teachers. My mom taught it at McKinley and in Kensington. And my dad taught out of BOCES out of East Aurora. Um, and we wanted to do something with what, what was going to be my last year of competing. And we wanted to show kids the journey. We wanted them to, you know, we wanted to do something that when we were 10 years old, we would have thought was really cool, which was meet an Olympian, spend time with an Olympian. The technology was just emerging that you could exchange videos back and forth with kids and you could do Skypes. And I Skyped with, um, with kids from nine different cities across, you know, North America, including, you know, an old city honors, you know, graduate, um, classmate of mine who was teaching in Jamestown. And really what, what Classroom Champions has grown into over the last decade is an international nonprofit that, um, supports schools in the social emotional development of kids. And we have programs. We partner with the Buffalo Bills. Thank you to the Buffalo Bills Foundation and to Delaware North and the National Grid who sponsor it. And most importantly, to, to, to Tyler, um, I always get his last name wrong. Um, Matikevich. Yeah. 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 Tyler and Reed, Reed Ferguson and Dion Dawkins have been mentors with Classroom Champions for years, and they mentor kids across Western New York through Classroom Champions. Um, we work with Team USA athletes, Olympians and Paralympians. We have had millions of kids learn what we call the athlete mindset, which is goal setting and perseverance and, you know, overcoming failure. Um, and the organization works with, again, like schools and school districts across the country and across Canada as well. So, you know, we are always looking to expand our Buffalo Bills programming for schools that, you know, want to learn, you know, again, how do you set a goal? How do you persevere? How do you, like, I think if there's anything when you and I were kids, uh, if there's anything we learned from the Buffalo Bills, it was how to persevere through failure. Uh, I think they they taught us that when I did my Hall of Fame speech, I actually Jim was the, Jim Kelly was there, and um, uh, maybe I think Andre was there as well. And I thanked them. I was like, "Look, guys, I don't mean to be whatever, but when I watched them lose and the city continued to love them, or when they came back from the first from the first Super Bowl and the whole city started chanting Scott Norwood's name." Scott, Scott, Scott in the middle of downtown, remember with tens of thousands of people, here's this like 12 year old kid that learned, oh man, you can try and fail really badly and people will still love you. That's kind of cool. Like that was a really neat thing to learn at 11 years old for somebody who wound up going to two Olympics and losing and failing and still kept coming back for more. Um, and, you know, I think that's what you know, classroom champions has really been about. And I think that's where my Buffalo roots and my sister and I, our Buffalo roots kind of show through in classroom champions is we want kids to learn that, learn that, um, and, you know, through the mentorship and through relationships and through supporting schools and their what's called social emotional learning in schools and their framework. So yeah, you can go to classroomchampions.org to, to learn more. Very cool. Yeah. Moms, dads, if you're watching, certainly uh, yeah. educators, certainly bills, Absolutely. Fans, certainly. Um, uh, lastly, no, two last things. Sorry. Okay. Um, when the Sabres are in Calgary, do you go to the games? I do. My, my Sabres jersey is up, upstairs. It's the, I, I've been here, you know, close to 20 years. I am a Flames fan, except for when the Sabres come. Very good. Yeah. What, what Sabre jersey do you have? Oh, I just got a generic one. Oh, okay. That's yeah. good because the name has changed so frequently anyway, right? So, yeah, right. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, we're, and I'm all, cheap. So, you know, and you're probably as heartbroken as everybody is here about the bills. And, <sighs> yeah. Are we ready to talk about it? I mean, I don't, it did feel good to watch. I wasn't sure how I would feel about the Casey Cincinnati game. Like I, I was sitting outside at a friend's house yesterday watching it and I didn't know how I would feel about it until Kansas city messed up once and then I realized, no, I want to watch. I, 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 I do want to watch them lose. <laughs> I tell you, what, I, I, yeah, I was so happy for for Cincinnati. I really was because I didn't. Right? I didn't want Kansas City to go back for a third year in a row because they would have jeopardized potentially our four years in a row going to the Super Bowl. Um, granted, they had won one of them, but yeah. um, and the other thing is just the way you know we lost and, and to see it happen to them, and you know, everyone's making a big deal about the coin toss and the coin toss is a terrible rule and this and the other thing, and and I maintain, listen, you lose the coin toss, it, it is what it is. Go and make a play. And guess what yep. happened? The Bengals made a play. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it was, was like, awesome. You know, done that. I like, and we wind up, I, I like my sister and I zoom every game, almost every game. And certainly the last like month, month and a half of the season together. And just like put the computer on the, on the laptop, on the couch. And we watch the game. And, um, and honestly, like the bills through their support of costume champions. And they supported me when I was an athlete too. Like it is a first class um, like Gretchen Geithner, Michelle Roberts and the team over there, like they're just, it's a first class organization who cares about the city. And I think that also like is why all of us kind of just persevered through 20, almost 20 years worth of <laughs> worth the of drought. failure yeah. of the drought of the drought to like, and that's, I think I explained to my friends here. I'm like, look, we've earned this <laughs> it's, it's, to watch Josh Allen and to see somebody who like, to have somebody who we have the faith like we did in gym back in the day, we've been, we've had to, we've, we've been through some stuff to get back, to get back to a point where, you know, we want the ball in our quarterback's hands with, with a minute left and two minutes left. And so it's fun. And it's just, you know, their time will come. And those guys, like I thought, I thought coaches, you know, comments in the press conference were, were incredible. Like he just owned it. Like, that's what I want to see. I want to see our coach. Like who knows if it was supposed to be a pooch kick, who knows, but the fact of the matter is he wasn't blaming anybody in that press conference. And I thought that was like first class in his, on his part. And, um, you know, classroom champions is actually doing one of our partners is, um, this education for persistence and innovation center at Columbia's teacher college, teachers college in New York city, one of the you know top 10 education and teaching institutes in the world. And they study the researcher we work with there. Um, Zhao Siegler, she studies failure. So she literally studies how elite level athletes, from myself to NBA players to Nobel laureates, how they handle failure and how that like helps in their life. And she, as soon as like that game happened, she messaged, she's like, I want to interview Josh. I want to interview coach. So I've got like stuff to go out to the guys this week for her. Um, and I think that's a neat, I think that's a neat thing that sports can give is that. And I think that's like, you know, it would be nice if once, if our bills could teach us how to feel when we win, but I do, <laughs> but it is a familiar feeling for all of us where we are right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, last, I'm assuming you're going to watch as much of the Olympics as you can. Oh, uh, my, so my wife is due with our second child on like the Saturday after opening, like, so like in like a week or a week, week or two, I should know that, but it's a week or two. So my plan is to, like, I get to sit there with a newborn baby and just watch the Olympics. I'm so right? excited. What a, what a yeah. good day. Two of two amazing things happening Absolutely. at the same time. Uh, and, and lastly, anybody you want to say hello to back home here? Oh, I mean, I want to say hello to, to Mark and Sandy and Willie and Colette. Um, and, you know, I want to thank Mark for Mark and Sandy just, uh, 
you know, did a sizable donation to classroom champions and it's going to support Western New York programs, which is really, really amazing. So those are two, um, two couples that I grew up with that are like, in essence, our, you know, our extended family and our extended parents, um, there. So those are, those are the folks that I would really want to really want to say hi to plus all my folks at city honors and, um, and the great work that's being done over there. And the snowman. And the, and of course my boy Dion and Reed and Tyler, <laughs> like how cool would that have been when we were kids right. to have, like, they get messages, the kids get messages every month from the app, from the players. They do zooms with the players. Like that would have just been, yeah, that was like, in essence, what Lee and I wanted to create was something we would have thought was cool when we were 10. I've uh, taken up way too much of your time. You're so kind to uh, allow me to catch back up with you, uh, obviously with the Olympics happening shortly in China. So I appreciate you doing this uh, classroomchampions.org, uh, folks, watch that, get into it, maybe make a donation. Uh, and if your school doesn't subscribe to it, figure out a way how they can yeah, reach uh, out to us. Yeah, we got, sure. we got room. We're starting to, we're starting to get everything ready for next year for all the schools and uh, yeah, go team USA, watch it. I mean, I mean, everything starts on NBC on Thursday, I think actually yeah. opening ceremonies on Friday. So yeah. enjoy well, the games. Good luck with the baby too. Thank you. Thank Great you. Great to Appreciate see you, it, brother. Thanks again. Great to see you.